Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's chaos in the streets as we end the first full week of lockdowns, quarantines, self-isolation, and disrupted lives as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, I guess it's the opposite of chaos in the streets. Everybody is staying at home, but I hope everybody is holding up okay. Everybody is facing hardships and disruptions these days. Viruses like COVID-19 can strike anyone, regardless of social or economic class, and we're all living in anxiety and fear for the health of ourselves, our friends, and our loved ones. The public and private services that we rely on, including schools, libraries, community centers, restaurants, government offices, are all shutting down operations. Many of us are being told to stay in our homes as much as possible, which only exacerbates the feeling of isolation and anxiety. The lucky among us are able to continue to work from home and continue to earn paychecks, while the unlucky, many of whom depend on those now-closed institutions for their paychecks, see a fairly bleak future ahead. Let's keep those folks in mind going forward, and I hope you will support your local businesses in whatever way you can. For the academics in the room, there's a lot of advice floating around out there for navigating the foreseeable future, which is going to include a lot of remote instruction. Now, remote instruction is very different from online instruction, but that's a distinction for another day, so let's move on. The best advice that I've seen floating around out there is don't strive for perfection. There's a learning curve for students and for instructors who are going online for the first time. You will get some things wrong, and your students will get some things wrong. Be lenient, empathetic, and generous with your students, but also be lenient, empathetic, and generous with yourself and with your colleagues. You're facing many of the same problems as your students, and it's not reasonable to hold yourself to a higher standard than anybody else. You need to take care of yourselves and your family. So take breaks. Spend time with your family or your cats or whoever is available to you. Catch up on some books, movies, TV, Netflix, whatever. Blow a few deadlines and blame the coronavirus. Make the most of these trying times is basically what I'm getting at here. Perhaps I can help by offering a new podcast episode. Luckily, we're already hip-deep in one. Today I'm talking to Dr. Matthew Campbell, a social studies curriculum coach for Cypress Fairbanks Independent School District outside of Houston, Texas. Matt is an instructor and team lead at SNHU and has extensive experience teaching K-12 and at the university level. Today we're going to discuss his research into the popular memory that Southerners held of slavery after the Civil War, and his research into how we teach history in America's classrooms. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Matt Campbell, and I am a a social studies curriculum coach. I work in a large uh, suburban school district in Houston, Texas, Uh, and then in my spare time, I uh, am an adjunct history professor. So a little bit of both worlds, but I work with uh, history teachers and social studies teachers, grades 6 through 12. Um, And then in a past life, I was uh, an AP in dual credit uh, U.S. history teacher. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure. So uh, I'm a little bit of a weird case. Uh, I started out, I actually did school um, online through the University of Maryland uh, University College, which has now changed its name to University of Maryland Global Campus, I think. And I did uh, a bachelor's in history there while living in the Houston area. And then uh, I guess in about 2010, I transferred and did my master's degree in public history from the University of Houston. Um, So I was uh, a public history major. I studied um, mostly uh, like Southern history, history of slavery, uh, history of like Reconstruction era, Jim Crow. Those were kind of the things that I was really into uh, when studying history. I got into the PhD program and was going to do uh, a PhD in history. And a, a series of misfortunate events led me to something different. And so my advisor actually had a stroke and I was with a new advisor. And at the time I had started teaching full time, actually. So teaching full time and trying to finish a PhD is uh, next to impossible, I, I kind of feel like. Yeah. But, so I did that uh, and then ended up switching into a social studies education major. So it was kind of more into what I was doing. So all of the, the history degrees that I had uh, really played into, you know, being able to teach uh, teachers and teach students about social studies and social studies education and kind of the theory and background there. So I ended up getting my EDD um, in social studies education. It's a curriculum and instruction degree. 
so I do do have a doctorate, uh, but did not do the uh, the PhD route. Um, and surprisingly, I was uh, ABD. I did finish all of my comprehensive exams and was really working on to start the dissertation. And it just, uh, like I say, with a different advisor, it just wasn't happening. And uh, mm. I felt kind of a, a change and a call to do something different. And so uh, there's there's been no regrets at this point. I've I've absolutely loved being able to work in the education sphere and being able to use a history degree for that. I think a lot of times people think you know a history degree can be used for anything other than getting a PhD in history and teaching. And and there are really so many things that can be done uh, with a history degree. And this has actually led to a a full scale helping of uh, working in the social studies department at my district and and with teachers throughout Texas. So those are uh, those are kind of my my ed background, um, you know, and then the professional background, I just feel like comes from from experience. The longer you're there, the longer you're teaching and the longer you're doing something, you're always adding a line to the CV and always doing something uh, to learn as an adult. So mm-hmm. working here at SNHU has been um, a really, really cool thing, actually, to be able to teach online because I feel like I know the types of students because I was one of those students who did my degree online. So uh, I totally like know where they're at, you know, as far as online teaching is concerned and, and online learning. Uh, well, let's fill in some some of those gaps back there. So when you were talking about your MA program, you were working on uh, public history, right? Yes. And you said that you were working on slavery and stuff like that. Were you working on some sort of a thesis or a, a project? I wrote my my thesis actually was uh, called Creating the Old South. Uh, and I, I wrote my thesis about popular culture, 1860 to like 1935. Uh, so I really was interested in looking at how People in the South viewed slavery after slavery was over. So as much as I studied actual slavery in the Old South, my entire dissertation ended up being kind of a reflection of that. And and looking at it in popular culture, you know, everything that would come through from books to uh, what eventually became Gone with the Wind, you know, the movie Gone with the Wind and uh, advertising and uh, all of those types of things that were sort of a memory of slavery. So um, really looking back to kind of people created their own um, their own reality about what slavery was and how slavery uh, existed in the South. And, and the farther that you get from the Civil War, the more elaborate the memory became, so to speak. Uh, so I was always really interested in, in, in memory formation and, and really, to me, how that was taught to younger generations. It's interesting, uh, now that I have an education degree, to go back and look at textbooks that were used for teaching students in school and look at how those textbooks portrayed, you know, African-Americans, how it portrayed slavery, how it portrayed all of these things uh, in the decades past uh, the Civil War. And so it's always interesting. We kind of arrive, I think, even today in 2020 and we're like, you know, why are some things the way that they are? And uh, I kind of look back and I'm like, it's a it's definitely a generational teaching thing that that has happened. And and a lot of that's come from, you know, false information that's been pushed through all the way back into the 1860s. So it's it's obviously not the the only thing, but uh, it was it was something that I thought was a really big uh, piece of the history that had not been talked about uh, as much as some other things. And so I, I became very, very, very much interested in that period of history and time. So what were your conclusions? What, How did Southerners kind of remember it? I, was it kind of, uh, you know, are, we were benevolent slave owners? <laughs> were we? Yeah, I mean, I think so. One of the most interesting things, thinking just kind of about the, the conclusion, you know, that uh, the, the conclusion basically became, uh, it was either it was either one of two things. It was either a conclusion of erasure where they basically kind of wrote it out as if it didn't happen. You know, that's the sort of even mm-hmm. gets into the lost cause mentality. Um, but also, you know, it became very much of the Gone with the Wind story. I think if you look for the conclusion of the memory of slavery, you can sort of end in 1939 at the premiere of Gone with the Wind, where there's even a point, Margaret Mitchell, uh, have a book that's like her memoirs, uh, where she talks about how teachers in school would use her book as a supplement to the textbook. So they would actually have students read Gone with the Wind uh, because they felt that Gone with the Wind had portrayed 
uh, to its utmost the way that the South was, you know, and I'm like this, this, you look back on that in, in hindsight and you're like that, that couldn't be farther uh, <laughs> from the truth. You know, we didn't have happy slaves and we didn't have, right. you know, even, even the idea of the plantation with the large columns and, and, a, you know, a plantation that would have hundreds and hundreds of slaves. I mean, we know that that largely did not exist. You know, those are few and far between. Uh, but that became the thing that was remembered because that was what was taught. Mm-hmm. And so people, when they think of the South today, that's always, you know, Louisiana or Alabama or something. They think of these really large plantations. And I'm like, you know, that that didn't even make up a small portion of the people who live. Most of the people who lived in the South were poor, white, who were like subsistence farmers. Mm-hmm. So um, it, 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 it was very interesting for me. Um, and, and as a master's thesis, I think, too, I think when you try to do your master's thesis, you you want to conquer the world. Uh, <laughs> right. You want to you want to try to do all these things. And really, it is kind of like a snapshot of the research you've done up to that point. Um, and, and so that was one of those things that I, that I had done. I think I, I set out trying to conquer the world. And when I was done, uh, I had a pretty good group of like just the generations, you know, I had followed my three chapters. I think that I did for my, my master's thesis were like an early, a middle and a late generation. And I kind of just showed how that had changed. And initially it had started out with just plantation memoirs, you know, and, and plantation fiction and things like that, that they would write. Uh, and it ends up becoming a full scale movie, you know, by 1939 mm-hmm. that that is is seen as I don't even remember how many Academy Awards, nine or something like that. Academy Awards. I mean, it is it is seen. And what I think is interesting, too, is uh, this even goes into going back to like Harriet Beecher Stowe and and Uncle Tom's Cabin. People in the north uh, or people who had not been to the south if they had never seen something like that with their own eyes or didn't have an educated view of what was going on and that's what you're being fed, it definitely plays into what you think, you know, and the same is true today. Like if you're a student or you're a person who's, who's never traveled outside the country and you've read things and you see things about other country, but you've never been there. The only thing that you know is the, is what you read and what you see Mm -hmm. a lot of times is not exactly the same. And so that, that kind of became the case for, uh, the story or the memory of slavery after the Civil War in America. Yeah, so that was that was kind of what I did. And uh, it's uh, been something that I've always kind of kept. And, and now that I've moved into, like I say, an education degree, I've, I've started to look more at just continuing that and looking at how education in general has done that, not just with slavery, but uh, just in all of the types of things that we teach, uh, which is which is um, really kind of what I've been getting into these days um, as far as as far as teaching students, you know, the, the textbooks that you have are, are, are one person's vision of what the history is. It's not the only vision. Like what part of the thing in teaching history is, is not just the content, but it's also the skill of discernment, you know, and the skill of understanding how to use, um, use sources um, and, you know, looking at arguments. It's all the types of things that we do here at SNHU in the History 100 and 200 classes. I know we switched it now, you know, but it used to be the atomic bomb and, you know, how we view the atomic bomb. I mean, that's another case of, uh, of memory, you know, how that how that's been remembered over the past 70 years mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is a quite interesting story in itself. Yeah, there seems to be a lot more attention to things like memory lately. Um, you know, thinking about like Reconstruction and all of that, there's, um, oh God, what's his name? Blight, Race and Reunion. Yes. Absolutely. That was one of my books that that uh, it's probably not even got the spine on it still anymore. I've read it <laughs> times and, and uh, was a he was a big hero of mine going through grad school. So that was a, a book that definitely had had influenced me for sure. Yeah. David Blight. That's his name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a brilliant book. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. And so was that going to when you were working on your history degree, were you going to stick with that for your dissertation or were you going to go in a different direction? Um, actually, so when I, I ended up doing a little bit more of an Atlantic approach, uh, and kind of spread out a little bit. Um, and I, I, when I was working towards, uh, the dissertation, uh, and doing the dissertation topic, I actually started to look, um, at cemeteries, uh, and I kind of wanted to look more at physical as opposed to popular culture, uh, Hmm. but looking at physical environment, um, and looking at how slavery was remembered through sort of like a built physical environment, which there's a lot to go into that now. That's that's definitely uh, 2020, I would say, you know, looking at statues, you know, the lost cause and looking at all of sort of the built environment, mm-hmm. uh, not just the popular culture, but cemeteries were something that kind of fascinated me, which is which is weird in itself. But 
um, you know, looking at the way that uh, slaves would be portrayed in cemeteries even after death. Uh, and so it was, it, there were so many pieces that made up this, this memory uh, that it wasn't just popular culture, but in everything, you know, um, we, you would see newspaper articles of slaves who had been interviewed, you know, in the 1930s through the WPA, uh, and then they would pass away. And when they would pass away, a lot of what was talked about or what was said about them had to do more with their idea that they had worked with such and such master or whoever this person was mm. more so than it was about their own life as a slave or their own life as a, as, as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that became uh, really fascinating to me. I had not seen anyone write about the cemetery aspect. And so uh, I've still kind of kept that in my back pocket. I have not seen uh, too many people address it, um, you know, other than just being a small part of an edited volume or something uh, mm -hmm. about how, uh, you know, enslaved people were remembered after death and how this kind of pushing it almost another generation forward about how this is kind of still remembered. Uh, you know, if you were to go and look at a cemetery, I mean, people were segregated even in death. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's, it's something that's, that's, that's still been fascinating to me. Uh, and like I say, I think it definitely leads to when I when I teach race and things like that uh, in like a, a 114 class is something that I always say, you know, none of this stuff happened in a vacuum like this is always there's always something that came before it that led to where we're at now. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and not that what I was looking at with memory, like led to, you know, civil rights or something like that. But but just to kind of show that, you know, there is a thread here uh, that that's that's consistently been here and that is still around today. Um, you know, when you go to, you know, historical sites and you go to some of these types of things that, you know, that memory is still there, whether, whether we choose to recognize it or not. Yeah. And that's the, th I mean, that's one of the reasons that, you know, during the civil rights movement, if you wanted to draw connections, I mean, that's what white Southerners were often kind of so fiercely protecting or defending was their old vision of the way life theoretically was supposed to be. Because, they had been told for generation after generation that black people are inferior, black people cannot possibly self-govern, you don't want them governing white people. And so by the time you get to the 1950s and 60s, you've had hundreds of years of that either direct or indirect indoctrination. Yeah. And so the idea that, oh, suddenly we're going to let black people vote, oh, that, that's alien. <laughs> and well, so there, it, there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of connections there. I think an interesting thing too, one of the, I know one of the things that was pushed really heavy when I did my master's was kind of thinking about what your theory is, you know, that we, we write a lot of times in history. And one of the big things when I was going through that is you got to have something theoretical. And so looking at memory studies in general, uh, just how like our memories form and how we create collective memory uh, was a really fascinating thing uh, when you start to put it up against historical topics. So when you become kind of interdisciplinary, you know, we can look at it just historically and we say, okay, well, here's how it was historically. But when you begin to kind of look at like how memories are formed, uh, how collective memories formed, a, a really good example of that was 9-11. They've gone through and they would do all these interviews with people um, 10 years after 9-11 had happened. Uh, and they had also interviewed these people as 9-11 had happened. And the way that they described or the way that their memories of this event, you know, this is a hugely traumatic event, had changed within the 10 years because it had been influenced by the people that were around them. It had been influenced by this collective memory that they started to put together. Uh, so I see that, you know, when you could see that research and then begin to compare that to something like slavery, you know, after the Civil War and say, well, these these people maybe had known and they had seen what had happened, but their collective memory began to change five, 10, 15, 20, a hundred years down the road because of, of the other things that were, that were put into that. So that was, that was always really fascinating to me to look at kind of the science. And even though I'm not a scientist and I didn't study that, but, uh, but really reading into that kind of theory of collective memory was, was a opening thing uh, that I think historians could, could honestly do a lot more of, uh, you know, to really kind of bring uh, a solidified conclusion and argument to what they're, what they're doing in history. Yeah, I think so too, because that is going to play a huge role in how people vote and how people work. And so all of the, you know, the main kind of focus, foci, focuses, <laughs> whatever that plural word is, uh, for history, I mean, that popular memory is going to play a huge role in all that. So I agree that that's something that people need to really have in mind as they're studying history. 
Yeah. So you didn't finish the the history degree because, you, like you said, you had issues with, or there was some stuff going on with your new advisor and all of that. And that's really a shame that your old advisor had that problem. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a one thing I kind of beat myself up for for a little while, and uh, I actually talked to the director of the graduate program, and I said, hey. You know, I said, I have some, I have a friend who's in this, this other program. And I just said, this, this doesn't seem like it's really working out for me. I said, is there any way that I can transfer some of what I've done here into, you know, this other degree? And, and she just, you know, she kind of thought about it for a little while. And then she said, you know, she said, given what you do now as a, as a teacher and somebody who works in curriculum, she said, I think it would be excellent for you. And she said, I really think it's where kind of your, your desire that you're wanting to go you know, and, and having, I'll say this much, having a job already, it, it has a, had a large influence. Um, I had known several people, and this isn't to discourage anyone, I knew several people who were uh, ABD or had PhDs, uh, and they, they were jobless. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was just this, you know, kind of anxiety of like, okay, if I get a PhD, and I'm out looking for a tenure track job, um, and I can't find a job, what am you know, what am I going to do? Uh, and so I had already had a job in education, you know, that was a, was a stable job. And so I'm like, you know, I really need to kind of put my focus there. And so uh, I'll say, yes, it did kind of back me up maybe a year or probably when I would have originally finished. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that I did it. And looking back, I'm like I say, I'm kind of uh, looking back on it. I've been in education now. This is my ninth year, you know, and I still know some people who I had graduated with who are who are still kind of fumbling around and looking for jobs. And so I'm like, yeah, in a way, I'm kind of glad I got out of it, you know, but like I say, that's not to discourage people from doing it at all. Uh, I know that there are job openings out there and there are special positions, you know, but you've got to be able to find the right one, um, you know, that mm-hmm. fits your expertise and and what the college is looking for. And so. Um, being able to do this with this other degree kind of it's I would say it's more of a practitioner's degree, you know, more than it would be like a PhD. Uh, and so it really helped me um, help me get a better grasp on what I'm doing. And actually, uh, this this next semester, I'll be teaching a um, uh, at University of Houston downtown. I'm going to do a uh, Wednesday night class, which is a social studies methods uh, mm. class. And so I'll actually get to do some graduate uh, graduate teaching uh, for the first time. Uh, and, and kind of working with uh, either new or pre-service teachers on, uh, and these would be people who have history backgrounds, you know, either a bachelor's or something to that degree, uh, who, who want to go into the teaching profession. So I feel mm. very honored to be able to teach a class like that to, uh, to people who are sitting right where I was and, and who are interested in going into teaching, because we really need more teachers. Um, I would say this for sure at the secondary level, we need more teachers who have history degrees. Uh, a lot of people go out and get education degrees uh, and they don't have a strong foundation in history, uh, which can really work against them, you know, when it comes time to teach, you know, a, a history class. And so having very competent people who have done a bachelor's or a master's or something like that in history uh, is really great for students uh, at the secondary level uh, to have people who are who are experts, you know, in some sort of history. Yeah, and that's uh, actually that's a fairly large population of the graduate program at SNHU. Is a lot of them are K through twelve teachers who yeah. are looking to for the ex, you know it's the extra credential. Some of it probably comes with a raise. I don't know, but it does mm-hmm. come with more expertise and all of that. So when you say that you were working full time during your PhD program, was that as a K through twelve teacher? Yes. So I was teaching uh, in Texas. We do U.S. history in the eleventh grade. Um, and so I was teaching full time uh, AP U.S. history uh, and dual credit U.S. history. So we, we basically in, in our district, we have them in the same class because basically the U.S. history survey is the same, whether you're doing it at a college or whether you're doing it through the AP program. Um, so I would have I would say about 150 students, you know, give or take, um, you know, six six full periods of students who are AP and dual credit. Wow. Great, great students, but uh, it is a lot of work. A lot of <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. Um, you know, it, it, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's fulfilling though. It was really great to, you've got some of your, your brightest students in that class who are really go-getters. You know, they, they really enjoy learning about history and, uh, and they even challenged me sometimes, you know, they'd come up and ask questions and I'm like, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Like, <laughs> you're going to have to do some research. I'm not an expert at all things, but, um, it was uh, it was kind of a job. It, it fell into my lap at the last minute. I was actually registered for some classes um, at at University of Houston, 
uh, where I was doing my graduate work. And uh, I got a call about three days before school started. And they said, hey, we need a dual credit in AP U.S. history teacher. And I was like, this is it. I'm like, I'm going to do it. You know, and, and I was, you know, getting paid like a thousand dollars a month or something as a, as a teaching assistant, you know, so oh, taking, yeah. on, taking on a full-time job at that point was like gold, you know, yes. <laughs> pay me a salary and, and I'll actually have all these things. So that was way better than uh, just being a TA. So I had done that for, for several years. So does that mean that you had picked up a teaching credential at one point or did you need that for an AP? Well, I did. I actually, when I finished my bachelor's degree, I had picked up uh, the teaching credential, but surprisingly, any of the jobs that I had originally applied for, and, and, and you know, I wasn't aggressively looking, but mm-hmm. uh, I was in grad, I was originally, you know, working on my master's, but I had the teaching credential back in 2010, um, but, uh, had really thought about, you know, if I teach, I would love to teach the AP and the dual credit kids more than I would, you know, like a fourth grade class or something or an eighth yeah. grade class. Uh, and so I had kind of waited, you know, for those jobs to open up, um, just cause I knew I would, I had wanted to teach on that more advanced level. So that was, that was as I, I think, you know, really the stipulation, I think in Texas, and I'm not sure if this is a national, uh, you, you basically need to, to do a dual credit or an AP. They really like you to have 18 graduate hours in whatever your subject is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you didn't have to have the full master's, but they wanted you to have enough content knowledge, uh, 18 hours worth, uh, you know, of graduate. So it was amazing that once the, almost the moment I finished my master's degree, I got a call for a job, but before that I didn't get one single call. So uh, <laughs> it kind of goes to show that getting a master's degree sometimes will, will put you out ahead, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to, when it comes to job prospects. Well, that's awesome. That's uh, that's, that's really cool timing. And I, I can imagine it would be nice to have that as a alternative while you're working on the PhD, because like you said, so many, when you're in PhD programs, usually you get your tuition waived, but Mm -hmm. you get paid a pittance to teach a class or two or however many classes you end up teaching. And and yeah, it's usually like a thousand bucks a month and that only goes so far. Yeah. They give you a sleeping bag, you know, and that's that's about it. Right. It's, you know, and it was kind of an, and looking back, it was an interesting change, you know, because as I had gotten more involved in the public education sphere, like I said, my mind had begun to go, you know, a little bit away from the PhD and more towards the, the EDD. And so, like I said, well, my advisor, uh, when he, he actually had to give up like five different students he was advising uh, and he was out on like rest for, I don't know, it was like six or eight months. And so when that happened, I kind of just took that as a a sign from the gods. I was like, maybe, maybe this is not the thing for me, you know, like maybe I need to, to think about something else. And so, you know, it, 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 like I say, I ended up working out and I'm really glad that I did it. And, uh, now getting the opportunity to, to teach some classes, you know, in, uh, in social studies education is really awesome. So since you were already teaching history at the, you know, high school level, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's what directed you into the social science aspect of the ed ed program? Yes, absolutely. So there are very few, I'll say it's kind of a weird thing, but there are actually social studies education or history education professors. Um, Not every college has them, but typically if you look in education um, departments at colleges, they typically have someone who is a a either social studies education professor or a history education uh, Hmm. professor that kind of fills that role for students who do want to go into uh, teaching social studies, um, you know, because even if you get a general ed degree, uh, they want you to be able to do some sort of like a social studies methods or something in the event that you might become, you know, a third grade social studies teacher or something. They want you to have enough knowledge of social studies content. So and, and granted, it's it's definitely different from someone who's teaching third grade versus someone who's teaching, you know, a senior level class. I mean, the the content yeah. depth is, is a lot different, but um but yeah, there are actually uh, actually those professors out there. I did not know that at the time, but I was like, well, yeah, I was like, if you can get a degree in it, that must mean there are professors in that. So that is really interesting because I didn't know that either. And it really seems like Ph.D. programs, they should require a class yeah. with those types of, of instructors. My, my advisor at U of H was, uh, he's a big advocate of that. He, he, he does say, you know, he said, I work, he, he goes, literally, I can see the history department building from my office across campus. And he goes, the funny thing is, is he's like, we don't seem to work very, we don't work together. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said, we really, he goes for, for kind of the efficacy of, 
of teachers in general, whether you're going to become, I mean, I, whether you're going to become a, a teacher who's doing survey level classes, you know, at a junior college or, or, or even someone who's going to do a tenure track, having knowledge of like methods on how to teach, uh, I think is, yeah. is very important. Um, and I think, you know, we're all aware now at the point, you know, the, the, the lecture is changing, you know, we still have lectures, you know, but we, in a 21st century environment, we, we, we learn in different ways, you know, even in online learning, uh, we learn in vastly different ways as opposed to listening to a, a 45 minute lecture all the time. Um, and so that, that's something that I, I do think would be an awesome gap, you know, to bridge there between, uh, the teaching of the content and the, in the, the process and the ideology of history, but also teaching, you know, the, it's the what and the how is really what it is. Those are the two things you're kind of looking at uh, and being able to bridge those gaps. Uh, like I say, we need more people in education who know history content. And I could make an argument for people in, in history content that need more training in, in the how, you know, on, on how to teach. So like I say, I'm somewhere stuck in the middle of those two for sure. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty common concern among, you know, PhDs that they got through an entire program and they know a whole lot of stuff about a mm -hmm. bunch of history, historical topics, but a lot of them have no idea how to teach. And all they, they, they were teaching while they were in grad school. I can speak from personal experience. I was teaching every, every semester in grad school, mm -hmm. but I, yeah, there was no theory or anything. And so basically the way I learned how to teach was to emulate the other teachers, the other mm -hmm. professors that I worked with. And that can be good, but it could also be horrible. <laughs> and so it yeah. really, I think it really would have benefited me and probably a whole lot of other graduates if there had been some theoretical education type courses. And that's hopefully something that PhD programs might think about including because mine sure didn't and I wish they had. Well, and there's definitely something to say about bridging the gap even between, I would say, secondary social studies, you know, six through 12, and then looking at just like the, the K through 16 pipeline, like what, what are... Because uh, it's always the same concerns I hear, you know, well, the high school teachers say, well, when you get to college, it's going to be like this. And then kids get to college and they're like, you know, did they teach you anything in high school? You know, it's always <laughs> right. that thing. And so I'm like, there really is something to be said about bridging the gap and having a conversation uh, between history teachers, history professors, uh, and then those that do teach, you know, these elemental pieces of that uh, in, in grade school. Um, there, there definitely is, is, a, is a conversation that needs to be had. For sure. So when you were working on your um, EDD, uh, what was your what was the final dissertation on? So I did. I, it actually was an outgrowth kind of uh, and it was I'll say this much up front. It was very different uh, learning how to do research uh, with live subjects as opposed to, you know, dead people who are on paper. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I had to actually relearn how to do uh, from Chicago manual style Turabian uh, and I had to learn APA. So I felt like a freshman mm. on like, the first day of class because all of the stuff I had done for so many years was like, we're going to do it differently in this department. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So mm -hmm. uh, but I actually studied uh, teacher perceptions of um, historically underrepresented students in advanced classes. So. Uh, it became an outgrowth of kind of what I looked at. Um, I, I work in a suburban environment that uh, is, is fairly what I would consider like a multicultural uh, environment. It's not a predominantly white, uh, but it's not necessarily predominantly anything for that matter. Uh, it's kind of a, a mix of everything. Um, but looking at just um, in advanced classes, how what what teachers perceptions were about the types of students that come into their classes, because uh, one of the big things that I found is, uh, or well, where the research really goes, this is not my research, but this is this is the research that's been done, you know, that the teacher, and I think we would say this at SNHU too, the teacher is a very influential part in the success of a student. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we believe that at SNHU, you know, we, we do that with the whole team lead and with the rubrics and all those things that uh, if you got a bad teacher, typically you're not gonna have very successful students unless they were self-learners on their own. Um, and so having a good teacher leads to success. So the idea then was looking at that in, in terms of race and looking at that terms in, in culture and uh, in economics and, and, you know, all those types of things that we might consider sometimes a disability in the classroom uh, from one angle or another and really looking at like what were teachers own perceptions of this in their class. And it's, it's interesting. Some of it was disheartening because you really had teachers who felt like the AP or the dual credit classroom was only for a specific type of student 
And like, if you, if you couldn't meet this, then therefore you don't need to be in this class. Um, and so teachers, a lot of times, uh, would just, I would get this a lot. They say, well, I treat every student exactly the same. And I'm like, I know that that's sort of a valiant effort to, to teach, but at the same time, like as, as good teachers, we have to consider the background of the student who comes into our class and we have to be able to, uh, to use that background, you know, to our own advantage and to their advantage. Um, and so it was a, a really a, a thing, a more of an exploratory dissertation that just kind of looked, I, I went into it very open-ended, you know, I uh, didn't really have a, uh, a thesis per se. It was more to see if we ask teachers these questions, you know, how do you differentiate for students, um, you know, or do you differentiate for students who are who are historically underrepresented, you know, or, or might be a, a language barrier or something uh, and getting just the, the barrage of answers between yes, I do or absolutely no, I would never do that, you know, um, and, and just kind of putting that into context and, and, and looking at how do we better help teachers recognize, you know, a multicultural classroom uh, so that all students can be successful, not just the ones that come in who were predisposed to be better learners, you know, or faster learners. Um, uh, so it was uh, something, like I say, it was kind of an outgrowth of my own AP teaching experience. I went into AP thinking it was just the best students, you know, like I won't have any problems with these students. And what I quickly realized was I had students of all different levels in my classroom. Um, you had the ones, you had the, the kids who came in and if I never said a word to them, they would make a five on the AP test and an A in the class, you know, like they just, they're very, very uh, uh, self-learners. And then you had other students who, you know, getting an AP credit or getting a dual credit while they're in high school was, was they're the first person in the family to do that. You know, they're the people who, who they really need this, you know. And so finding a way to work with those students uh, in a high school environment, I think, is the biggest, biggest piece of context there. Like, um, while it is a college class, you're teaching it to high school students. You know, they're, they're 16, 15 years old. Um, you know, which while we may not think is, is different than an 18 or 19 or 20 year old, um, just in terms maybe of ability to learn sometimes. So, uh, that's what I really looked at with my dissertation and I'm currently working on some, some publications, um, to that end, you know, with some of the things that I found, uh, just the colorblind teaching aspect, the differentiation aspect, and, uh, just general teacher attitudes, you know, in the classroom. Uh, so like I say, it's, it's, it's in a way it's far from history, but in another way it was, it, it's very close to the idea of, you know, social studies and social justice and things that we already teach, um, you know, but it's just looking at it in a modern day context and a modern day problem. Yeah, I can see the connection there because yeah, you're all of the students that are coming into you, they have their own backgrounds, their own history. And so mm -hmm. you need, it's good to be able to analyze the context in which all these people lived and that can help you to then hopefully help them in the present. <laughs> so yeah, I can see the connections there. So I assume the the stuff you learned in your ed program, I'm assuming you have in, incorporated it into your own teaching and all that. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, so just, just the idea of like culturally relevant teaching, um, allowing students to do projects or inquiry into history uh, that is something, you know, that they're interested or something that might be close to their own cultural background. Uh, a good example of what we kind of do with this, probably something a lot of teachers do, you know, you might study World War II as a subject in isolation, uh, but allowing students to be able to look back at their, maybe their own ancestry or their own thing uh, to see uh, how, how their own ancestry was involved in World War II. And being able to use that as kind of a teaching point going forward, you know, that we, we typically with textbooks teach a very um, one type of history. You know, it is this um, textbook style history. And so uh, the more that we can allow students to get outside the textbook and, and tell a different element of the story uh, really adds to, I think, a collective knowledge, you know, in the classroom and for the teacher um, of, of, of that piece of history. And so I've really encouraged teachers and I've done this in my own classrooms, uh, just to try like a uh, great depression was another one. You know, we look at the great depression sometimes and we teach just those textbooky you know, types of things, which students need to know for sure. Uh, but getting students to be more interested in the great depression on how it affected different groups of people. 
uh, you know, looking at Mexican Americans or African Americans or, or immigrants from different countries or even on a global scale uh, to add that kind of extra element in there where students then can feel that there is more of a place uh, of where, you know, like I say, their own family line or their what they consider their identity in history um, usually does a lot for their interest in the subject. Uh, and so I try to do that as much as I can to create projects like that and create assignments and, and, and to have some flexibility, I think, in what you're teaching. Um, you know, we're, we're entering an age today where uh, the, the what is becoming trivialized because you can get on the internet and find just about anything you need, you know. So uh, teaching kids about the Great Depression with the textbook style knowledge, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah, they need to know this, but I'm like, they also could look this up at the same time. Like mm -hmm. they may benefit more from working on skills of researching something that uh, helps us know more about it, you know, than they do just memorizing the causes of the Great Depression. Um, so I've, I've, like I say, I've tried to do that as much as I can and encourage teachers in different ways to try to think about that, you know, from like a multicultural perspective uh, in history, because uh, for the longest time, you know, we just haven't had that multicultural history or haven't had textbooks that that typically show it, you know, and that, that goes back into the Howard Zinn, you know, the people's history uh, type of thing. Um, and although we don't use that as a textbook all the time, you know, but getting kids to kind of think in that vein. It's interesting you brought that up because I've been thinking about a lot about that lately, too, in that for the college level programs at SNHU, we've really been kind of directing the courses more into a skills acquisition than a content memorization, because at this point, we can pretty much outsource the factual stuff to, you know, Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> it's not perfect, yeah, but it's not it's actually not as bad as people think, at least for factual no, knowledge no, no, no. or the American YOP. There's all kinds of kind of online collections of facts that we can kind of rely on. And so our focus instead is going to be on how do you build the skills, analyzing sources, assessing validity, assessing legitimacy, mm -hmm. you know, tying them together, building an argument based on sources. I think that's kind of the direction that a lot of our classes are going to be going in also, just because in this day yeah. and age, we've got, you know, with, with all of our cell phones and everything, everybody has access to pretty much any historical fact they want. It's just a matter of how to, what do we do with those facts? And yeah, right. so I think that's kind Absolutely. of the direction everything's going to be going in 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 the future. Yeah, and as and as somebody who's working in social studies, I mean, it's the same thing that we're trying to do uh, with teachers, you know, on a K through mm -hmm. twelve level. So uh, it, it's always interesting. I'll I'll see first year teachers come in, you know, who have come out of a grad program, and uh, you know, they're in there and they're like lecturing five days a week, you know, and and I'll I'll see the looks on some of their kids' faces, you know, and I'm like, why don't we try something different, you know, like. Let's really get the kids into working with the with the sources and get them doing some hands on things, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that, will, that will better help them have an appreciation for the the process of history and and a historian. But also, I think, get them really involved in something that they feel is interesting more so than just, uh, you know, listening to the lecture five days a week. So um, and even though I love the lecture, you know, and I, I, I love hearing some lectures, you know, I just I know kids today are sometimes will will phase out, you know, on those mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of lectures in my day that I've phased out on too. So <laughs> it's not, it, it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, you're, so in your role uh, teaching high schoolers, you may not deal with this all that much, but do you have any students ever that are curious about you historian as a career? Do they ever come to you with any questions about that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I actually have had a couple students who were in my AP class and who have gone into, you know, getting a bachelor's in history, um, you know, whether or not they have wanted to become teachers or not. Uh, the public history aspect for me, uh, I'm, I'm surprised I don't work in a museum or something. Uh, I absolutely love public history. Um, and, and I think it's such a versatile degree because even though I wrote a master's thesis that dealt with a normal, just a regular normal history subject. Uh, I also got in my master's program opportunities to, um, you know, to intern. I interned at the Menil, which was an art museum. And I, I don't know anything about art, you know, but they did, um, they have a whole thing of uh, African uh, antiquary, you know, stuff there. And so I actually did research for them uh, as an intern, you know, somebody who studied U.S. history, yet having the skills of a historian, knowing how to research, knowing how to find sources, 
all those things are really helpful when it comes to getting a job doing something that may not be in history. Uh, and so there are so many jobs out there for people that they're looking. And I think even in 2020, I mean, gosh, with the last three years of the media, having somebody who can discern sources is a skill now that's probably more valued than it ever was before. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody who really knows where to find those things and, and, and sift through. So uh, I had some good experiences with a public history degree and, and being able to do research. And, and it was interesting to me because I get bored with some subjects easy, you know, and so being able to move from, like I said, I studied African disease and how these terracottas represented some disease that they had in Africa. And I was like totally fascinated by it. And I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I had to become more well-read and really do some research on it. Um, but that's what I did as a, as a kind of a public historian in, internship. Um, it, was a, it was a really rewarding thing and, and uh, makes you feel, you know, for local history or something like that, that as a historian, even though you may not know the subject, you've got the skills to be able to do that and to bring that in and to help people who don't have those skills find the resources and, and tell the story. So um, I think as far as like historians in career, um, public history is an awesome way to go. I think if you do want to go into teaching, uh, as I've said before in the podcast, I mean, we, we definitely need more teachers who have history degrees, um, who, who can, who can get in there and really teach students, you know, about history and not just look at it from, uh, you know, a regular ed perspective, uh, just as a curriculum, you know, that you just kind of regurgitate, but really, really teach those skills to students. Do you feel like there's anything else that you wanted to cover before we move on to the recommendations or do you think we should? No, I think that's great. I mean, I know uh, SNHU has a, a public uh, history program. Uh, so I would like to say I would encourage anybody um, who wants to wants to look into that. And even if it's not at SNHU, uh, you know, look into a graduate program, whether you go into teaching or public history or even if you want to do straight history and do a Ph.D., uh, there are jobs out there. Uh, don't don't be um, you know, don't be scared. Uh, of the idea that if you don't find a tenure track job that your life is over. Um, I don't have a tenure track job and, and I think I, I make good money and, and lead a great life. So um, I, I know that that uh, seems to be the thing that we push a lot of times for students. But uh, like I say, the world needs more historians outside of uh, academia. Um, so that would be my encouragement to anybody who is who is a student who's listening, at least. Uh, what do you have to recommend for us today? Sure. So along the vein of kind of uh, public ed and, um, and, and looking at social studies, um, I, I would recommend if you're, if you're teaching history or if you're not, or if you're just a student who's learning history, uh, James Llewellyn's uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. I think it was actually originally published in 1995, uh, and it has been republished and now republished again in 2018 with like a newer version. Um, is an excellent book, uh, and it really does go into that. Um, I, I can remember my first year of teaching AP dual credit. You know, I went in, I kind of just taught to the textbook, um, and I went in and I taught those things, you know, and there would be some occasions where I'm like, maybe I know something a little more than the textbook, but, but I would typically stick with the textbook just out of nervousness and out of the idea that I wanted to make sure that these students were getting a, a comprehensive, you know, uh, learning of the history there uh, in those survey classes. Uh, but uh, the, the book is excellent. It really kind of goes in and talks about how uh, this like conglomeration of history textbooks have gotten it wrong and how we we have some narratives in there that we've, 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 we've kind of said, well, this is how it is. And then we teach students this uh, and how it sometimes does a disservice to the students to learn it this way. And so he really has a call in his book um, for really kind of se setting the record straight on a few things um, and then also really thinking about how students inquire about textbooks. Um, and so that's always been something that's been near and dear to my heart just because I deal in a curriculum department. So sometimes teachers who don't know any better doing the best of intentions teach to the textbook, you know, and, 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 and so it's kind of a call for having uh, educators look at subjects deeper, look at textbooks deeper, um, and, and really think about that there is a history that exists outside the textbook and that it is something that we should consider um, when it comes to learning about history. So uh, I would recommend that it's called Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, and I would recommend it uh, just as a casual read, even if you want. Uh, I actually got it on audiobook uh, and listened to it in the car one of the times, and uh, it's just an excellent thing to go back and reread and kind of uh, rethink about your own practice as a student of history or, or as a teacher of history. Yeah, that's a great book. I, I read the, it must have been the first edition back in the 90s. And so in the newer edition, does he kind of bring the, the 
because he was studying textbooks. And so is he studying more recent textbooks in the more recent? He does. Yeah. He's made some, he's made some updates as far as, yeah, what the textbooks did and didn't get right. And then kind of also a call maybe for like in the 21st century, I would say. Um, and I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, he has like a Ford or something at the beginning of the newer book that talks a little bit about digital media, um, and things like that. And so it, it does kind of bring it, uh, it, it doesn't change the whole book, but he does make some updates and some, some thoughts as to, uh, where we stand in 20, I guess it was like 2018, I think when the last version came out. So, you know, where we were at the age of 2018, you know, than we were in 1995. And, and, and part of, part of the argument is some of the things haven't changed, you know, which is the depressing part, but, yeah. uh, still, still the call is out there, you know, with his book that, uh, Hey, we, we really need to be looking at some of this because right. in another 20 years and we're still teaching the wrong thing. Why are we doing that? You know? So it's a, it's a book to make you think, uh, like I say, even just as a casual read, I know it may not be history, uh, you know, a history subject, but if you're looking for a book, that's not a, not a history book for, for a change, uh, but that is related maybe to history, it would be a, a great book to pick up. Yeah. I'll second that. Like I said, I, I love the, uh, the, the first edition. So I need to go check out the uh, most recent. I didn't realize that he was in a, a, a more recent edition is out. That's really cool. All right. My recommendation is a website, which actually kind of goes along with some of the stuff you were studying uh, in your earlier, earlier years. It's called Freedom on the Move. Um, it's a crowdsourced website. Uh, I haven't spent a whole lot of time on it, but at least the concept of it sounds really cool where they are taking advertisements for runaway slaves and kind of crowdsourcing them so that people can transcribe them and attach metadata to them so that that makes all of these thousands of runaway um, fugitive ads searchable. And um, wow. that'll hopefully allow for some kind of analysis and broader uh, broader interpretations and all that. So it seems like a really cool project, really worthwhile. It reminds me a lot of the, um, the transatlantic slave voyage yeah, database Altus and all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, this, this really feels like this is kind of a really cool use of, you know, computers <laughs> and stuff yeah, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's um, it's run, it looks like it's run through Cornell university, but it's got, a, it's got advisors from different universities and a bunch of tech people and all that. So it seems yeah. like a really cool project. Um, and I think it just kind of got up off the ground recently. I don't have a date on here, but mm -hmm. so I don't know exactly how extensive it is so far, but I think it's once they get going on it and they start plowing through those thousands of ads, I think it's really going to be valuable uh, yeah. for future research. So I can say, yeah, there's some dissertations to be written. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, Steve, uh, check, check that out. Freedomonthemove.org. Will do. All right. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for joining me today, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. It was great to, great to talk and, uh, and even to hear myself talk. Some of those things I, I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't said out loud, you know, and I'm kind of just listening to myself. I'm like, okay. So yeah, it was really, <laughs> great, really great. And, uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to, to discuss and to chat with you. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. From Matt Campbell, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe, everybody, and I'll see you again in two weeks. <laughs>